All right. Welcome to the Opportunity Starts at Home podcast, where we talk about opportunity in America today and how housing fundamentally shapes that opportunity. This is your host, Mike Kaprowski. I'm the National Director of the Opportunity Starts at Home campaign, and we're glad that you tuned in. We are a national campaign that advocates for stronger federal policies that expand affordable housing for the lowest income people. But what makes us different is that we're bringing together new voices from other sectors to help us do it. Sectors like health, education, civil rights, anti-poverty, anti-hunger, faith-based, and more. These sectors are increasingly realizing that they can't fully achieve their own goals and priorities if the people they serve lack access to safe, decent, affordable housing. So we're building a multi-sector coalition and we're broadening the housing movement. This podcast really explores the connections between housing and all of these other sectors. Housing policy is school policy, health policy, economic policy, civil rights policy, criminal justice policy, and more. Few things shape our opportunity more than housing. We have lots of evidence about it, yet housing is often overlooked by our leaders and our policymakers. But being able to afford a decent home is a prerequisite for opportunity in America. The promises that our elected leaders make every election cycle, better health, better economic opportunity, better education, those things can only be fulfilled if people have access to good affordable homes in which to live. So we talk to research experts, we talk to leading advocates from different sectors, and we talk to elected officials. I hope you enjoy and hope you learn something too. Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's episode with the wonderful Amanda Andiri, who is the CEO of Funders Together to End Homelessness. And we're going to talk about the inextricable linkage between housing and racial equity. Uh, Housing justice is racial justice. And there's really nobody better to talk about this than Amanda. Uh, She spent over 15 years working in the nonprofit and public sector as a leader committed to racial equity and social justice and and housing affordability uh, through advocacy for systemic change. Uh, Prior to joining Funders Together to End Homelessness as their CEO, she served as the CEO of Wider Opportunities for Women, which is a national advocacy organization. Currently, she serves as a board member of the United Philanthropy Forum, the James Madison Political Science Alumni, and co-chair of Away Home America, which is a national movement to end youth homelessness. Uh, And previously, she served as an adjunct professor at George Mason University, executive director of FACETS, and vice president of Cornerstones, uh, all of whom have similar missions of preventing and ending homelessness and and breaking the cycle of poverty. So, Amanda, welcome to the podcast. Happy Monday morning. Thank you so much for having me. Happy Monday, indeed. So let's, uh, I want to um, start by you just sort of telling the audience a little bit about yourself. What's not in the official bio that I just read? Why do you do the work? What gets you up in the morning? Sure. So what's not in the official bio that's really important to who I am and why I do this work is my both of my parents are immigrants to this country. My mom's from Jamaica, my dad's from Kenya, and I'm actually okay. an immigrant myself, although I've spent most of my adult life in this country. Uh, but I was born in Canada and came here when I was a wee one at two, okay. <laughs> at two years old. <laughs> so 
But what's really important about that is my parents, while they um, were raised pretty upper middle class, they came to this country right after the civil rights movement. Mm-hmm. And for them, they experienced discrimination in a different way. And while they had uh, white leaders in their community as a part of uh, their host home, so to speak, as uh, immigrants coming to go to school here, uh, that that welcomed them. I mean, my mm-hmm. both of my parents went to grad school in Walla Walla, Washington, <laughs> where there where literally there were people who said they had never seen a black person right, in their life, right. but they were welcomed in by a particular host family that for until they passed away, I called grandma and grandpa, mm-hmm. and they always instilled in me that just as other people had given to us and given back to them, that we had to do the same that it was our purpose in life to make sure that people who didn't have the opportunities that we had, had the opportunities, uh, or at least had a chance at those opportunities. So that was yeah. really important in my formation. And I also have a strong background uh, in, or a strong faith background. So I grew up in the church. I'm now mm-hmm. a deacon at my church in Reston, Virginia. And so my faith also calls me to this work. I come from a faith perspective that it's that is inclusive, that's about radical justice, and so and is progressive. And uh, but also this idea that um, we are called to do uh, the work of of for us, for God, and other people. I know that they are called in other spiritual ways. We're called to do the work of of helping God's people. And to me, that's not just like passing out food at a food bank, which is super important. It's really asking the question, like, why is my neighbor hungry? And so that's yeah. really been a big part of my background. So that is a little bit about me on the fun side. I'm also a theater kid. So I grew up doing uh, musical theater, theater and dance. And so my passion and love for performing now translates into my passion and love for speaking about the issues that I care about. Uh, but I really, especially during these times, have been using music and theater to just also center me to the arts, which I think can be uh, such a unifying force for all of us. Yeah, great. Thanks for sharing that. What an what an interesting journey. Um, as you're talking, I, I was thinking about my own faith background and was raised Catholic and, and very much the, the Catholic social justice um, is, is largely what, what motivates my work. And then, Absolutely. Um, but a lot of differences too uh, yeah. between our journeys. I'm a, a white kid from the suburbs um, yeah. and I took, I took one theater class uh, in college and I was not very good at it. So you're, <laughs> you're much more skilled than I in that area. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe we're similar skill, but I, uh, years and years of passion and taught me a lot about leadership actually. Yeah. Yeah, I think the only class I was worse in was ballroom dance. That was like a <laughs> PE class, and so those those are my two roughest subjects: was theater, theater, and ballroom dance. Um, oh, that's right. funny. That's funny. Um, so, uh, tell us about um, Funders Together to end homelessness. Uh, what does Funders Together do? What are you about? Yeah, so we are a national network of more than two hundred and fifty foundations. United Ways and individual philanthropists who are working to end homelessness by investing in best practices, addressing structural racism that leads to homelessness, centering and prioritizing people with lived expertise and solutions, and engaging in advocacy and policy change. So we don't do any funding directly, but what we do is bring funders together locally or nationally or across the issues that they specifically focus on, whether that's by population. And 
create space for funders to learn from each other, to learn from us on our point of view and best practices, and then to use their voice locally and nationally in policy and advocacy. So we Mm -hmm. provide a lot of networking and learning opportunities. And we also do that from an intersectional lens. So a growing amount of our members might not fund directly in housing and homelessness, but they come, they fund in education, they fund in making the criminal legal system actually a criminal justice system. And they know that housing stability is critical to those outcomes, whether Mm -hmm. that's um, in health, in child education. And so they come saying, you know, where can we align our funding? Where can we align our po- our policies to think about housing as a critical p- component of all the outcomes that we share? Mm-hmm. At the end of 2019, we re- released our eight commitments and four aspirations uh, around uh, our work for centering racial equity in ending homelessness, which I'm sure we'll get into a lot during our time together. Uh, But that's been a really important uh, change for us as an organization. We've been around for 10 years and have always had what we call a point of view or a point of approach. So strongly based in housing first, strongly Mm. based in centering people with lived expertise and humane policies. But now we've totally focused our mission and vision to center racial equity for philanthropy to understand their their part in enabling racial injustice and then think about ways that they can do that injustice through their grant making policies and practices. Yeah, it's it's it, you all do such great work and I find myself going to your website and pulling from your stuff quite a bit uh, in, in our own work with Opportunity Starts at Home. Um, so you set me up well. Uh, I wanted to get into racial equity. Um, so, so talk to us about, you know, what does it mean um, to center racial equity in this work? That's such an important question. And I think it's actually something that we should be thinking about or centering every day. Sometimes we forget, um, especially in the world of policy and advocacy, that not everyone always knows what we're talking about. So we we really try to center the definition. And so for us, racial equity means closing the gaps so that race does not predict one's success or predict outcomes, Mm -hmm. while also improving outcomes for all. So this idea about racial equity is that we center on those who are are historically and continually to be um, oppressed or marginalized or outcomes are not the same. But that then means that we will improve outcomes for all people. Um, Equity is distinct from equality in that it aspires to achieve fair outcomes and, and considers history and implicit bias rather than simply providing equal opportunity for everyone. Mm-hmm. And racial equity for us is not just the absence of overt racial discrimination. It also is the presence of deliberate policies and practices that provide everyone with the support they need to improve their quality of lives. Yeah, I, that's a great way to think about it. It's just, you know, race race is no longer a predictor of outcomes, right? That's That's essentially what it means. But today, it is very much a predictor of outcomes. And so I want to get into just kind of establishing a few baselines uh, for the audience about how uh, racial inequities manifest in the housing space today. Um, and I, you know, I personally think about it in a, in a couple different buckets. And of course, there's there's many ways to, to sort of structure this, um, but this is how at least it works in my own head. So, um, you know, I, I think about it in terms of, you know, how racial inequities manifest in housing. I sort of think about it in terms of affordability, um, who is, you know, who's struggling to, to pay rent, um, segregation, right, the, the location of, of where people live and the associated opportunities uh, with that and 
homelessness, um, who is who is experiencing homelessness. So in kind of that rough construct, I'd kind of like to go um, one by one um, and focus first on the uh, the affordability question, if that's OK. Um, I, I want to look at like who who is struggling to pay rent in this country. Right. Who, what do we know about who has extremely low incomes and who's most likely to be um, burdened by by housing costs? Yeah, so I think that's a great question, always to establish a baseline of what we're talking about. And actually, you know, the National Low Income Housing Coalition's own report uh, around mm-hmm. the gap of, of, of a sort of affordable housing always every year illustrates that, you know, in no community can someone working minimum wage afford uh, just a two bedroom apartment. But yeah. I really have appreciated uh, what you all have done to dig deeper and uh, start to exa- to examine and highlight some of the racial disparities. So from that report, we know that only 6% of white non-Latinx households are extremely low income renters. Mm-hmm. Black households account for 12% of all households in the United States and, 19, and 19% of all renters. But they account for 26% of all renter households with extremely low income. So that's a big yeah. disproportionality. And likewise... Uh, Latinx households account for 12% of all households, 19% of all renter households, and 21% of all renter households with extremely low incomes. And I know that we see some of those same patterns for Native American and indigenous communities and Mm -hmm. that there's a real gap in um, the amount of of low income uh, renters and a huge disproportionality compared to their, their, uh, their numbers in the general population. So, you know, one of the things that, that I think about, and I think it's a point that, um, you know, sometimes gets missed. And I think within our community, um, we've looked at the numbers, we understand it. But I'm talking about just, you know, when I'm having a Thanksgiving dinner with my uncles or something, right? And I'm trying to talk to them about this. Um, you know, I think something that, that gets missed, and I think largely, frankly, by white people that don't want to talk about racial equity at all, um, is, you know, they'll say something like, well, well, you know, there are plenty of white people struggling to pay the rent, too. Don't make this about race. And, and it, I mean, you know, if you if you pull up NLIH sees the gap, right, and you look at sort of the raw numbers of severely cost burdened, extremely low income renters. Yeah, I mean, there are plenty of white people struggling to pay the rent. There's a lot of white people in this country. Um, but this and, and help me think through this. But this this conversation that we're having about racial equity it's not a denial of that fact, right? None of this conversation is to suggest that housing affordability is a problem that only impacts people of color. Um, but it is to say that housing affordability is a problem that disproportionately impacts people of color. It's not, it's not exclusively, but it is disproportionately. Everybody is affected, but, but not equally. And it's, it's in this disproportionality that we must talk about racial equity, right? It, it goes back to what you said earlier about asking that question of why is a black household more likely to struggle than a white household? Um, and, and to me, that's really where this conversation sits. Is that a good way to think about it? Yeah, so I think absolutely. So I think you mixed in a little bit of the current and historical, which is when we have a racial equity analysis, that's what we start to get to. So, mm-hmm. of course, acknowledging that white households um, experience uh, extremely, uh, experience housing poverty or, or, um, or are struggling to pay rent. 
but it's it's the current data, so the disproportionality, yeah. but also looking at the historical context. So historically in this country, because of uh, issues around redlining and segregation and um, just common laws that were on the books, uh, disproportionately black households, Native American households didn't have the same opportunities as white households to develop wealth, yeah. um, to be able to choose where they live. And so, uh, and and it goes back to, is race a predictor? And is race mm-hmm. a factor or a, determin- or a determination of your status? What we also know is even when uh, black households and uh, Native American households um, acquire more wealth, that they still face certain discrimination yeah. that their white counterparts don't don't face. And so they might have more wealth or more access to live in certain op- in, in certain neighborhoods, but might be denied those opportunities, um, whether that's home ownership or even uh, in renting because of their source of income or because of racial discrimination. And so race is still a predictor of their outcomes. And, and you know, when we talk about privilege, that's what we're talking about, that, uh, that for many white low-income households, they um, still, of course, are suffering, but they might have certain privileges um, that might afford them to to navigate in a different way in this country. And that's what we're talking about. But I think mm. going back to my earlier point, you know, when we focus on why we have that disproportionality, we focus on uh, an analysis that says what will uh, close that gap, uh, then yeah. we know we're focusing on policies that will benefit uh, all people, right? And mm-hmm. this is... Um, what John A. Powell calls targeted universalism. A very simple description that's always used is uh, curb cutouts in our uh, roads and sidewalks uh, mm-hmm. that were originally advocated by the disability community, uh, mm-hmm. people with differing abilities, excuse me. And uh, But those now benefit all of us, right? Like um, I used yeah. to travel a lot, but you know, this, these yep. are different times and that helps me when I'm pulling my suitcase or it helps the yep. mom with her stroller. And so... We've focused on the needs of the people who uh, the system often doesn't think about, and we develop policies and also give them what they need, not just give everyone the same, that ends up um, benefiting everyone. Um, And I I also think it's okay to understand because of the historical context that there might be opportunity, there might be moments in when we're thinking about racial equity, and I know we'll get to some of this later, where people are given different opportunities or different resources that might not benefit uh, their white counterparts, but their white counterparts have experienced extreme privilege and extreme benefit through, right. historically through this country. And so the equity piece is giving people what they need, not giving everyone equal access to everything. And I think mm-hmm. that's where that's where some of the tension lives, but I think we have to live, live into the, and sit with that tension in order to achieve racial equity. Great, and we'll, we'll certainly tease out a lot of these a lot of these things a little bit more as, as we go. Um, so let's. I want to look at a um, uh, another sort of measure that I mentioned. The second one, which is the segregation aspect, right? If you look at where people live um, and the opportunities in their neighborhoods, right? We we know that um, the neighborhood you grow up in uh, largely predicts. Um, your life outcomes. There's a common saying now that I, I hear at a lot of conferences that I go to, which is that your zip code is a better predictor of your health than your genetic code. Um, and, it, and it's true. Um, and then there's, there's a lot of things in, the, in a neighborhood that shape this opportunity, right? It's school quality, it's 
um, job availability. It's banks and pharmacies and grocery stores. Um, and so, uh, you know, there was a, also a recent report from Brandeis University that found that most white kids in this country live in neighborhoods of high opportunity, while most black and Hispanic kids live in neighborhoods with low opportunity. So what's kind of your, your perspective on, on racial segregation in this country? Yeah, well, again, I think we could look to historically what happened with disinvestment in public mm-hmm. housing and uh, redlining and, and segregation that force uh, those disparities. But I want, I, it's, I think rather than thinking about the data, I think, and thinking about neighborhoods as opportunity, I, I think it's really important for us to start to think about disinvestment, right? Mm-hmm. That opportunities, that opportunity neighborhoods or neighborhoods that lacked opportunities right. are because we've historically disinvested in some neighborhoods. Yep. And so, you know, I hear a lot of talk about uh, opportunity neighborhoods. When I worked uh, in direct service in the Northern Virginia area outside of DC, just as I was leaving direct service, there was a lot of talk about like creating opportunity neighborhoods and this idea about giving uh, people opportunities to to live in better neighborhoods, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, but w- a pivotal moment that changed my thinking about that was uh, I did some uh, work uh, in in Baltimore um, mentoring folks. And I remember some of the young adults that I talked to there, uh, and not just in Baltimore, in, in neighborhoods across the country that people mm-hmm. would uh, deem uh, low income and, not la- and lacking opportunity, saying to me, like, I don't want... Uh, achievement or success to be when I move out of here. And that's what I'm told a lot, right? Mm -hmm. How do I make my neighborhood that neighborhood of opportunity and success and achievement? And so, you know, when I think about um, the history of this country, I think about we have made a choice. We've made a choice to disinvest in neighborhoods and we only invest in in those neighborhoods when when the surrounding neighborhoods are now... um, uh, there's no opportunity for affordable housing or they become so Mm -hmm. populated that people push out to the suburbs. Mm -hmm. And that's when we start to invest. And that only uh, historically benefits white people or mostly white people, Mm middle-class folks, definitely. So what does it look like when we have a strategy to say that like neighborhoods deserve investment and deserve the type of investment where the community says, this is what we want, right? That yeah. it's not determined by the Whole Foods, um, no shade to Whole Foods, but like <laughs> Trader, Joe's, <laughs> well, Trader Joe's yeah. or like, you know, or even like other things like I, you know, when you sit in community, like when they talk about investment in neighborhoods, of course, they want access to foods and, and want don't want to live in food deserts, right. but they also want spaces for community mm-hmm. and schools where teachers look like them. Like, I think, you know, we have to think of investment and opportunities in different ways and we haven't done that in this country. It's been we've we've used code words like uh, revitalization or redevelopment, mm-hmm. and like that usually means pushing out people, low income folks, and low income folks of color. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it's such a good point that oftentimes when we talk about high opportunity neighborhoods, low opportunity neighborhoods, we talk about them sort of as if they magically fell from the sky, right. um, and we don't like th- this was very much engineered there's a reason why we have uh, differences in in neighborhoods um and it's because of racism it's because of you know government sanctioned bad public policy but yeah 
I think you're very right that we, we always have to contextualize those terms because they're very loaded. They can very easily send the wrong message and we have to contextualize them by saying this didn't happen by accident. And we're, I, I want to get more into that, more into the history um, here in a minute. Um, la- last thing I just wanted to establish a baseline on was who experiences homelessness. Um, what, what do we know about that? Yeah, so what we know is that although black people comprise 13% of the general population in the United States and 26% of those living in poverty, they account for more than 40% of the homeless population. Yeah. Uh, this is so important because this suggests that poverty rates do not explain the overrepresentation. Um, and exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and we uh, we often hear that a lot. Um, that uh, this that homelessness or housing insecurity is about uh, poverty, uh, right. but the population of Black and American Indians or Alaska Natives experiencing homelessness it exceeds their population of those living in deep poverty. Mm-hmm. We also know the same for youth homelessness. So the 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 numbers that I quoted for you before actually have been on HUD's website for years, uh, but our partner supporting partnerships for anti-racist community spark did a whole report Mm. on the disproportionality of people experiencing homelessness. And likewise, our partners at Chapin Hall with their voices of youth count, we know that 7% of youth in the United States are LGBTQ, while 40% of youth experiencing homelessness are LGBTQ. Uh, But LGBTQ young people are 120% more likely to experience homelessness than non-LGBTQ youth. Mm-hmm. And youth that are black and LGBTQ reported the highest rates yeah. of homelessness at 16% compared to their white counterparts at 8%. Yeah. Um, you know, so, it, you know, I think it's it's extremely important to look at things like uh, gender or look at uh, um, other ways that people experience vulnerability. But usually when you cut down to it, race still is a determining de factor or an overriding factor in uh folks uh continued oppression and so that's why we have to start start with race so when we think about inequities there's a lot of inequities in our system people always ask me like why do why are we starting with race because the data shows that like race is really you know Mm -hmm. a glare and disproportionality or disparity yeah so i've been i've been tabling this this question for a minute even though we've we've sort of alluded to it already which is the history the history piece right how it how it got this way and and you know the way that that i um think about it and the way that i talk to some people about it is um again you know it wasn't an accident but but you know when a certain when a certain population comes in at the at the bottom of nearly every single uh, outcome measure of well-being in this country it's it's not accidental it's intentional and and whether it's housing and i mean we just established baselines around housing i come from the education space very similar story uh it's a similar story in health employment uh, criminal justice income mobility um people of color are at the bottom of these measures and the and the pattern is so well defined it's so consistent that it just couldn't plausibly be accidental it's racism and in many cases it's it's government sanctioned racism so i know there's there's a lot of a lot of history here i'm not asking you to sum up the you know the the history of racism in this country but but sort of um help us think through just how do do we talk about how do we talk about this history what are the main things that we should highlight 
Yeah, so I think we've been talking about our history a lot more, which is really important mm-hmm. to give context about what, how we got here. Uh, and if anyone has read Richard Rothstein's A Color yeah. of Law, we know about uh, that that this was pur- purposeful. As you said, it was government-sanctioned. Sh- yeah. And so we know from like 1918 to 1968, um, there was institutionalized housing discrimination, restrictive covenants, redlining, Federal Housing and Administration and GI Bill loans, among other national and local policies, resulted in entrenched housing segregation across America. You know, yeah. when we when we think about when we look at the redlining maps, and we're also it's really important because I often hear from folks, oh, that was the South, that was not us. You know, mm-hmm. the, some of the most deep entrenched redlining, and they look at redlining maps, happened in California and happened in New York, right? And this yeah. was a, a part of making sure that. People of color, particularly black communities, um, did not ha- would not be able to purchase in certain neighborhoods and have access to wealth. Yeah. Um, and so this has created this, uh, uh, the, eliminated the potential for multi-generational wealth accumulation. And so we think about it, wealth accumulation in this country is largely tied to home ownership. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at those disparities that happen across systems, um, your access to wealth and your access to opportunity, as we talked about before, whether that's in school or education, has been d- determined by where you live and determined by your tax bracket and determined by your local government's ability um, to pull from that wealth. And yeah. so I think that's important for us to, to, under- to understand and recognize. I also think, but I've been thinking a lot about this when it comes to public housing. Like we actually, at a time in our country, valued public housing and we valued providing housing as uh, a stable part of someone's life uh, especially for folks who were working and but when you know from 1972 to 1992 we saw an 80% reduction in federal investments in public mm-hmm. housing yep and that was coupled with safety net programs and that's no accident as you mentioned because we yep. know during that time period the people who started to access public housing were black and brown folks. And yep. so the reduction in investment, uh, you know, when you look at unconscious or unconscious bias, I, I happen to think it was uh, conscious and government sanctioned, was we're going to disinvest in something that we once thought was important, but when it was largely becoming black and brown, brown folks accessing that public housing, we not only start, stopped building it, but we stopped investing in the type of public housing that we knew uh, would would create community and create a sense of, of ownership and opportunity. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I think that to me is the historical thing that we have to sit with and understand um, mm-hmm. in terms of our housing policy. Uh, it's well documented. Uh, this, you know, to me, this is not one of these things that we can debate anymore <laughs> that right. we can just right. point to and say like, you know, this has caused uh, huge disparities in generational wealth and huge disparities in opportunities among um, people of color and white people. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Richard Rothstein. That's come up so many times on on our podcast. Such such important. And, and, you know, he one of the points that he makes in the book is that this is a history that is well documented. It's really not up for debate. And yet there's there is a vast I think he calls it a historical amnesia in this country, right, that we don't this history is not discussed in K through 12 education. It's not really discussed. I mean, I was a political science major in college. I never confronted this stuff. I didn't confront this stuff in K-12. 
I didn't confront it in my undergrad. I didn't confront this this stuff until um, until graduate school when I I took a class specifically about race in American politics. Right? It's just it's not baked into our collective. Um, knowledge around us history and yet it's so clear and i think that's that's by design right there's if if you um you know if you're not aware of it then you don't have to do any of the hard remedies that would be required um but um i even think for people who are housers so to speak or work in ending homelessness you know when richard rothstein's book came out and people were just like i think taken aback or so aghast i was shocked that people who work in housing where we can point to like a clear pattern of government sanctioned racism that I know that it wasn't the first time they heard of redlining, but it was the first time they had to sit with Mm -hmm. the fact that they are working in a system that has continued to be unjust and that none of the things that we have done have been working uh, towards uh, creating that justice or breaking those disparities. And no, you know, and, and it's because, and I think it's because like you mentioned, like if we don't have to, if we don't, recognize that we don't have to deal with it right. i think for a lot of white people including white people who are working in affordable housing who are good folks like there's just this this tension and uncomfortability with like oh this is a this is a bad part of our history yep. and we have to sit with that and understand why this happened and why it continues to happen yeah yeah the other um the other book that i read that was formative i don't know if you've read it or not but I'm, i was thinking through it so much as as you were talking is it's a little bit older um but it's uh, a book by ira katz nelson when affirmative action was white yeah um yeah. Have, have you read that? it was i have I was but thinking, it's been a while since i yeah, read yeah. that and now i'm like oh i have to go back and read that <laughs> i i actually went back through it um about six months ago uh and it, it would it had been like years and it's so great because it it highlights these new deal um these new deal programs um and you know gi bill and, and uh home loans and and i mean ira makes this this case um that you know, um, particularly around the the GI Bill, these home loans, these are the things that largely created the modern middle class in this country, um, and and black people were uh, systemically left out of these benefits. Black veterans were, uh, you know, left out of, of GI Bill um, benefits. Um, you know, if I recall uh, correctly, um, you know, the, the deal was that, uh, you know, to get Southern Democrats on board with some of this stuff, that it would have to be, uh, these programs would be locally administered. And so there were all sorts of creative ways that, that all sorts of creative things that were done at the local level to uh, screw black people out of out of uh, GI benefits. Um, and, and, you know, the, the generosity of these New Deal benefits that created a, a modern middle class and, and largely a modern white middle class, the home loans, the GI Bill. I mean, the GI Bill was, it was full tuition. It was a monthly living stipend, right? right? Like you could be a full-time student and not have to work. I mean, it makes the modern day Pell Grants look like piddly squat. I mean, it was just the generosity of these things. Today we would say, wow, and an entire generation of of black households were were left out of this, um, and so it, it goes back to your earlier point that there there was such a long history of policies that exclusively benefited white people, and until we confront that reality, um, we're, we're going to really struggle to um, you know to, to remedy these these racial inequities. So anyway, I'll just throw that book out there as one yeah, that I no, is, so is really good. Um, so. Uh, 
So Funders Together is committed to systemic change. Uh, you talked about this. And that, uh, you know, it requires large-scale uh, public policy to achieve it. As you said earlier, we, you know, we're not going to be able to program our way out of this. Um, programs are important, but it also is going to require policy. So um, let's, uh, let's say you're, you're uh, President Amanda, you know, you, you just won the Electoral College in a landslide. Congress is on your side. Let's dream big. Um, wh- what are the most important policies that, that we would need to enact um, to achieve uh, racial equity in, in housing? Yeah, so I thank you for that really important dream big question and for assuming that I could win the presidency. <laughs> but, oh, uh, come on, but, uh, easily. <laughs> yeah, well, unfortunately, I was I was not born in the United States, even though I'm a naturalized citizen, so I can't even run for president, which is, which is A-OK with me. Um, All right, we'll have to I, work on that. Yeah, but I just want to set the tone because I get this question a lot. And one of our colleagues who works for the Meyer Foundation in D.C. said this one time, Uh, presenting to our funders and it really sticks with with me in terms of like this question about like what are the policies and Mm -hmm. understanding what we're dealing with and I just want to it's important to me to set the tone so Mm -hmm. the understanding that the tree is 400 years old and the roots are deep that these trees are deeply rooted in racism and the fruit they bear is rotten we have to plant new seeds and toil new soil and that was Aisha Alexander Young and she's the senior uh, vice president of strategy and equity at the Meyer Foundation in DC mm-hmm. and I, I just think that's important for folks listening because sometimes I answer the question about the policies saying I don't know like they, mm-hmm. like this is so deep like how yeah. are we going to do 400 years of oppression in one session of Congress, or maybe even two in terms of policies and practices, especially as we talked about earlier, we haven't sat with that history and done an analysis to break down like why we got here. Mm -hmm. But I think if I could dream big, I do feel like when we're really talking about from a housing lens, what will fix some of the racial injustices, we're talking about reparations. And Mm -hmm. that's super uncomfortable for folks uh, when we think about reparations, but given the history that you just uh, outlined, when we think about the historical disinvestment and lack of opportunity for uh, black Americans and for Native Americans to access things that would have given them access to wealth and education opportunity, like that needs repairing. Yep. <laughs> and yep. and that means uh, reparations. Now, I, I don't know how that plays out uh, in, in a practical sense, but you told yeah. me to dream big. And so I feel like what if we looked at um, the, the cost or the cost burden uh, that, it, that comes with being low income or not having access to opportunity as a person of color? And what mm-hmm. would it take to repair that, um, whether that be um, in, in the form of housing support directly in the form of investment into neighborhoods directly? from a reparations mindset. Like how do we as, a, as government, as the public, uh, repair what has been disinvested in? So yeah. those are, those are, that's my big idea. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean the mechanics, uh, obviously, but the, but the big idea, the big concept is, is reparations. And yeah. yeah, I think that's why I was thinking of uh, Ira Cass Nelson. If you, if you understand that, um, 
you know, uh, when affirmative action was white, that was the title of his book. When you understand that history, um, it becomes incredibly clear for the, the need for this. So, so let's, um, at the risk of being a Debbie Downer, um, <laughs> let's let's come back to reality. Yep, <laughs> we're yep, in a absolutely. we're in a hyperpartisan moment in this country. Um, do you think there are certain policies that, that would advance racial equity in housing that are that are achievable at this moment in time? Yeah, I actually think this is happening all around the country in communities and neighborhoods where people mm-hmm. are starting to be racially explicit about how yeah. they invest in communities. So particularly before and after what happened in Charlottesville, um, that former mayor there set up uh, racial equity funds that was looking uh, historically in the community of Charlottesville and Baltimore has done the same. So uh, what are the resources that we can pull together in public-private partnerships um, that will look at the historic disinvestment and try to repair that from a neighborhood standpoint and from a policy standpoint? And these racial equity funds are popping up all across the country as well as there are large-scale governments like Minneapolis and mm-hmm. Philadelphia that have racial equity officers uh, yep. in place that are looking at all, all their policies from a racial ex- explicit lens. And so, you know, some of the things that they're they're starting to realize is that we we as government have been too race neutral, and so we haven't looked at particular populations, particular neighborhoods, and identified the investments based on uh, those uh, disparities we've been talking about this whole time. Mm -hmm. So I think that's promising. And, you know, in one, in, in some of the things that we outlined in our four aspirations and our racial equity commitment, um, we talk about uh, black and native Americans receiving assistance, at least in proportion to their presence in the homelessness population. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that kind of, it maybe is a little easier way to say things like reparations. And, right, right. Um, some of the policies and some of the policies and practices that we see working is uh, having people with lived expertise, particularly people of color with lived expertise, at the table or creating their own tables in policy making decisions. Um, so we get, we don't just get to the data, but we get to right. what's the what does the data office often is missing something, and people's lived mm-hmm. expertise helps yeah. in that and designing policies. When we look at um, some of the work that's happening around eviction prevention, we Mm -hmm. see a focus on racial justice and racial equity by really targeting or um, identifying uh, neighborhoods uh, and particularly black and brown neighborhoods where this has been vast and going to the community and uh, thinking about uh, policies and solutions tailored to their needs. And I feel like that that, it's becoming less political. I think um, that mm-hmm. that that those types of approaches to policies are working in communities across the country, and I th- and I think they can be taken to scale. Yeah. So all of these very important and necessary changes under the the reparations bucket. So I'm going to run another risk with this question of I, I fear that this might be a chicken or the egg question. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but what happens first? Um, is it is it policy change or is it a changing of the hearts? Right. Like um, if we were going to ac- accomplish this as a country and uh, and pursue the the, the, the types of, of reparations that we're talking about, wh- what happens is, is it is it the policy stuff that happens first? Do you have to change hearts first? I know it's a little chicken or the egg, but what's your take on that? 
And I've been thinking a lot about this as I think about why haven't we moved um, enough of the needle in this country on ending homelessness. And don't get me wrong, communities across the country have been doing an incredible job in the work to end homelessness, but we know we have an affordable housing crisis and we have, and it's not people to blame, it's systems to blame. And the system mm -hmm. has largely failed us when it comes to housing. And yet in communities where they see large populations of people experiencing homelessness and housing poverty, and they, in, in response, vote to tax themselves. Like you look at places like LA or San Francisco yeah. and say like, we want to tax ourselves to put poor money, more money into supportive housing and services and affordable housing, the tunes of billions of dollars, mm -hmm. um, we still face uh, the nimbyism. Yep. And we still face like, oh, well, we, we wanted to, to tax ourselves, but we didn't want that uh, shelter right. or that affordable housing in right. our backyard. Yeah. Even in the progressive cities. You Even see in this. the very yeah. progressive cities. Yeah. Like, I, I, yeah, I don't think this is... This does not have a political divide. It mm -hmm. has a, a, a like a lack of, of heart divide. Yeah. And so that's led me to believe that we can't rely on people's hearts. We've we've waited too long for hearts to change um, mm. and that we need policy. At the same time, we we both know that after the anti-discrimination laws and um, the segregation laws passed in the late 60s, yeah. it's not like all of a sudden right. people will up and we're like, oh, great. Yeah. I'm not, I don't want to be racist anymore because the law right. tells me so. <laughs> right. Yeah, the so, hearts didn't automatically follow. Yeah, Exactly. So yeah. I think that answer to that question is people knowing their place and putting resources into what they can best do. I think that there needs to be a fundamental change of hearts through education and understanding. Like I, I feel like when people understand the racialized history in this country, their hearts start to change. Yeah. And so like... You know, one of Richard Rothstein's recommend recommendations is totally changing how we teach history in this country to recognize that mm -hmm. racialized history. But I think in the meantime, we need to build the political will to push through on policies uh, that will get to racial justice. And that means that like sometimes the public will and the political will, the will of leadership will not align. And that's a very different way of doing policy in this country. But that that policy, that way, different way of doing policy recognizes that power needs to be held in a different way. And majority of policy is made in this country based on who holds power, right? Mm -hmm. And that, yeah. it, that also is racialized. And so yep. um, I'm torn because I, I want to change hearts and minds because policy won't change um, the, the fact that my husband and his son uh, even in our diverse neighborhood, are still at risk of being stopped by police, of mm -hmm. the, being called on, the police being called by our neighbors. Um, and we live in a great neighborhood. I don't think that that will happen. But I, yeah. you know, yeah. that doesn't, per the policy doesn't protect them. It's people seeing them as human beings is, is what will start to protect them and make me not worry about them so much just when they're going on a bike ride. Yeah. But if the policies are not in place, like then I have right. to rely on people's hearts and minds and I can't rely on that either. Yeah. No, I, I, I struggle. This is why I asked it. I yeah. mean, I, I struggle with this too. I mean, I, I often think you brought up the, um, the civil rights, um, legislation in the sixties. I mean, I think of the, uh, the civil rights act of 64, which I mean, you know, monumental achievement in its day, not enough, but, but certainly a, a huge accomplishment in that, in that particular moment. And, 
you know, and and much in the country, many people in the country were not ready for that legislation. I mean, I, LBJ at the time said, I, I know if this thing passes, the Democrats are going to lose the South forever. And indeed, the South flipped from Democrat to Republican, and it hasn't gone back since, if you've looked right. at an electoral college map right. recently. Um, and, you know, had we waited for hearts to change, it could have been a lot longer for the Civil Rights Act of 64 to pass. But again, it's that same thing where it's not like the hearts automatically followed. There was still a lot of so it's it's almost like, you know, maybe if we could if we could go back and, and, and do that over again, we would put more emphasis on what you said earlier, which is the education piece of we really need to understand the, the history here. And, and perhaps until we have a collective understanding of what was done, um, then maybe maybe the hearts will follow. But uh, certainly a very, very difficult uh, question. Um so uh, I suspect um, that there are, are many organizations that think they're doing racial equity work. And we don't have to call anybody out, but <laughs> I, I mean, I assume that there are organizations that, that think they're doing racial equity work, but they really aren't. Um, and so I wanted to ask, what are there common myths or common uh, mistakes that organizations make uh, as as they pursue this work? Yeah, so I think what comes to mind for me uh, when we're currently reading as a staff is Dr. Ibram Kennedy's book around uh, being anti-racist yeah. and um, this idea that we can't be quali- quietly uh, non-racist, that we have to be vocally uh, anti-racist. Mm-hmm. And so understanding that if a policy doesn't explicitly uh call out the need to be uh, anti-racist, that it probably is inherently racist, is a mm-hmm. really um, important uh, thing to hold in, in our collective work. I also think for a lot of organizations, you know, that they um, tend to water down the reality of white supremacy and anti-blackness and systemic racism and go to the comfortable space of diversity, equity, inclusion. In fact, yeah. A lot of times when I mention racial equity, I hear a lot of leaders, nonprofit leaders, particularly leaders in the housing movement, they default to talking about the makeup of their board and staff. And mm. that's important, but that's not equity. That's diversity and inclusion. Mm. And so, you know, ec- racial equity is about policies and practices internal to your organization and then the policies and practices that a lot of folks advocate. And of course, diversity and inclusion helps us, it, it makes us better as organizations, right? Just, But it also helps us understand those policies and practices. But may, understanding that difference is, I think, so critical. Um, yeah. I also hear a lot of folks in the housing movement say, well, but most of the, the policies or the things that we're working towards are uh, affect black and brown po- folks. So this idea, you know, sometimes we ask mm-hmm. the question around, so what are you doing about racial equity? And people will say to me, well, the majority of the people we serve are black. <laughs> and it goes to yeah, that. Yeah. When I started in the beginning, it's not about uh, feeding people. That's super important. But I want you to ask, like, well, why the majority of people are you serving are black? You know, and yeah. what, what, what does that mean? And so it's not enough for housing policy folks to say, well, like, the policies we're working on are going to affect 
black people, like, are they? Or do you mm-hmm. just know that disproportionately black people are low income? And so when you're working on low income policies, you think they're going to affect black people. But historically, like, we're still here, right? We still have these yeah. disparities. So I, I feel like those are some of the also the myths and mistakes that people make is the in- lack of intentionality around anti-racist policies. Um, and it's separating policy from diversity and inclusion. Yeah. I'm really glad you you brought that up, and um, frankly, I mean, it, this was a this was something that um, I made a mistake on really not not too long ago, and it's exactly what you said in the interest of being vulnerable on this podcast, right? Sure. I feel I feel safe with you, but yeah, um, yeah, no, but 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 I mean, I think I, I can't remember exactly what I said, but I said something to the effect of like the the policies that we're working on um, in the campaign uh, will will help black and brown people, um, and and uh, our friend Peggy Bailey. Um, who I'm not sure Peggy listens to this, but Peggy is, is awesome. But, but she made that point to me that, um, you know, we, we can't make the mistake of associating working on low income issues generally as being the same as racial equity work, right? Like if you're an organization that works on helping low income people, that's not necessarily by extension, racial equity work. And, and she made the point to me very well, that if you're not explicitly talking about racial equity, then you're not doing it. Um, and I think one sort of concrete example that kind of floated around in my head was that if you're, you know, say you're working on um, housing issues for extremely low income people and you're you're pushing for a, a big expansion of the National Housing Trust Fund, right, to build more affordable units across the country. Great. Um, but if you don't uh, if you don't center racial equity in that, then you, you're going to miss some really important things, one of which is the question of going back earlier, where will these units be located, right? Will these, will the location of these units promote, um, you know, racial integration or will it sustain racial segregation or to put more bluntly, are any of these units going to go into wealthy white neighborhoods, right? And so there's all of these uh, really important, um, important conversations that will, they, you know, they will go missing unless you have, unless you've centered racial equity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I, um, it's probably the hardest work we will do is to build a racial equity analysis. And I don't know when this podcast will come out, but I have been thinking a lot about this given the pandemic that we're facing in our country. It's not like I feel like folks are going to forget it, whatever that they listen to. Right. Just remember where we are with COVID-19. I have been particularly worried that because we're in crisis mode, that we will default to doing what works for everyone. And this is now like the time to use our racial equity analysis and muscle uh, in ways that we haven't before. Because what we also know, because of the work that uh, your organization does, that in crisis and disaster, people of color are disproportionately left out um, and they felt the impacts before the disaster and they're the last to come out of the disaster and sometimes never recover. And so this is a moment, this is why building a racial equity analysis is so important because it should be like anything else we do. And I, I compare it to like working out. So I've been doing more workouts because I've been (laughs) home and trying to like um, stay healthy and stay focused and gosh, my body hurts, right? (laughs) Um, Lifting, lifting more weights and hurts, but that's, it, but it reminds me every day that I'm doing this work. And that's, to me, a racial equity analysis means working on it daily, not just assuming that because we know 
the history of racism in this country that we know how to have an analysis and it should hurt every day. It should feel uncomfortable yeah. every day. So then we remember that when it comes to this crisis and we're not just thinking about people of color, but thinking about what did we not do the last time that we need to do differently this time. So I'm, I'm particularly yeah. concerned that we, we won't do that level of analysis during this crisis, but I'm also hopeful because we're more racially conscious that um, that won't happen. Yeah. Well, first, good on you um, for going to, because there's so many gyms that are closed now. Well, so yeah, you're doing yeah, it I'm in the house, out. which is yeah, awesome. Right, yeah. yeah. So with, just so everyone knows, I'm working out in my home. Okay. <laughs> yes. Our gyms are totally closed, but yeah. You know, okay. yeah. And I'm, how fortunate are, am I to be able to do that in my home? I mean, I, I know. oh yeah. gosh, I understand the privilege of that. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Um, I'm, I'm glad you brought up the, the coronavirus crisis. So, you know, I think we'll, we'll push out this podcast in the next few days. So, you know, as we talk right now, Congress is working on, I think it's the third stimulus package as we speak. Um, and, and I think your point is, is very well taken and very important that it's, you know, uh, centering racial equity, this, it's not the time to put that aside. In fact, the crisis reveals that this is this is the time to center it, right? Yeah. It's not something that you put on the back burner and you revisit once this crisis is over. This is actually the time to apply it and, and center it now uh, more important than than ever, really, uh, because these these crises, um, whether it's a hurricane, whether it's a coronavirus, I mean, they they reveal the underlying inequities that are that are baked into the system and have been for a while. So I'm glad you brought that up. Um, I want to spend a little bit of time. We're we're running a little bit out of time, but sure. I want to ask you kind of how we um, how we uh, best respond to people who don't agree with us. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and you know you hear a lot of a lot of arguments. There's um, there's the colorblind argument of well you know conversations about race just make everybody uncomfortable, puts everybody on edge. I don't care if you're purple, red, green, or blue. Let's just treat everybody the same. Let's be colorblind. Or there's you know. Um, arguments around, well, you know, if we put affordable housing in my neighborhood, the the kids in the in um, the kids in that new housing might not be able to keep up academically at our school. Or, um, you know, we bought into a single family neighborhood, and this affordable rental development is going to change the character. And I don't I don't like density. I don't like congestion. Or the person who says, well, my friend told me that affordable housing brings crime and it decreases property values. I mean, there's so many. And I think this kind of gets back to what you mentioned very early on in our conversation, which is the the overt versus the covert. Yeah. Um, there, there's there's so much of this that is thrown at you. I'm sure you struggle with it um, or you encounter it in, in in your job on a on a fairly regular basis. So. What's your take on that? I mean, how do we how do we handle all, all of this, all of the sort of counter arguments? Yeah, so I think also the important question is who handles it, right? So mm. I I tend not to focus on um, how do I persuade people, although I think that's part of the work. Obviously, I want yeah. to focus on building power, mm. and I think that this is the the work of persuasion has to do with whether you consider yourself an ally or a co-conspirator. So, you know, I be, believe very strongly that it's not the job of the oppressed to continue to ex explain their oppression and convince people mm. that they are oppressed, that there's yeah. a responsibility for white leaders uh, in our movement to uh, for affordable housing and to end housing poverty and to end homelessness. 
uh, to be the allies and and more particularly co-conspirators. And I'll I'll explain that a little bit. So, you know, to, to me, a lot of people who are doing this work consider themselves advocates and allies. Um, but, you know, sometimes allyship can be a little bit lazy. Um, and mm-hmm. it's great that white people are, are willing to give their support to people of color. Uh, but they that they need to recognize that the need to to do more. Um, mm-hmm. And by definition, a co-conspirator is a person who is engaged in a conspiracy with another with others, um, recognizing that uh People of color, particularly uh, black people, are criminalized for dismantling white supremacy. And it mm-hmm. means that uh, white people take on the consequences of participa- participating in that criminalized act and choose to support and center people of color in our justice movements. And that means that they need to do the hard work of doing that explaining. So that I center more on like what we need to do versus who we need to do. Of course, mm. leaders mm. of color will speak speak will speak up and around about racial justice um but i don't want to spend my time oppressing myself more <laughs> by convincing mm-hmm. people of my oppression yeah and yeah um and then we sometimes have to realize like let's stop trying to convince people and uh get build the coalition of the willing i think there are more people in this country i i definitely think there's deep-seated racism in this country, and mm-hmm. we we are seeing um, that in the times that we have now. But I believe through education, through policy, through the engagement and dialogues like this, there are more people in this country who will step up to be an ally and step up to be a co-conspirator if folks just keep at them. And I think we need to focus on the coalition of the willing and build power there um, rather than trying to convince every last person, uh, that my liberation matters and that Mm. my humanity matters. Mm. Yeah. Really, really well said. Something that I've struggled with is when I hear some of those arguments of, well, you know, I I don't want density. I don't want affordable housing. I don't, don't, you know, it might hurt school quality. Um, is, you know, it, in some cases, certainly there's a, there's a racial animus there, right? They, you know, they think affordable housing is for black people and they don't want black people in their neighborhood. And it's as simple as that. And they're just trying to use race neutral language to disguise it. Um, you know, per, perhaps there's the folks that are misinformed. Perhaps there's folks that really just don't like density. They don't like that lifestyle. Um, I mean, I, you know, how, one of the things that that I've that I've struggled with is um, you, it's you can't be a hundred percent certain all in every case of what's in people's hearts when they when they make these statements, and I think that that's a a, a challenge in this work of calling it out. Do you have any sort of thoughts around around that? <sighs> it's a tough. I mean, it's so, a tough one. Yeah. So, so like here, I'll say. I mean, I'll say. Uh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say maybe, yeah, get, getting a little bit more specific on that. Question. Yeah, so, um, so one, you know, like um, in it, when I was in Dallas, um, and I worked on um, uh, source of income discrimination. Right, landlords can say no to voucher holders just because they have a voucher, and we were trying to get the city to pass an ordinance that would say if you're a voucher or if you're a landlord, you have to accept a voucher holder. It's a legitimate <laughs> source of income, um, and so. Um, you know, we would get these, uh, you know, we, we would get responses back of folks saying, well, you know, the government shouldn't force private landlords to accept housing vouchers if they don't want. And there would be all these sorts of arguments um, that would come our way. And again, I, you know, in some cases, you, you, you can you can tell what they're saying. In other cases, I sort of was like, I, I'm not 100 percent sure where they're coming from. Um, but I always 
I, I tried at least to, to take the approach that I would respond to them of, you know, regardless of your intent, regardless of your motivation with that comment, um, it's important for me to point out to you how this will adversely impact people of color. It was sort yeah. of like the disparate impact approach where yeah. I sort of like, I don't know, I, I would kind of like, I, I don't know your motivation with that, but let me tell you how this plays out. Whether you realize it or not, there are racial implications to what you're saying. And, and you know, in Dallas, it was the case that nine out of 10 voucher holders are black people, right? So yeah. even though source of income discrimination, it, it appears neutral, you should know that this pretty much exclusively impacts one one group of people. How do you feel about that now? And then once you point that out, you sort of hear their next response and you might get a better sense after that conversation of what's in their heart. But I just always kind of struggled with that initial, like, I don't always know where people are coming from here. Yeah, no, I think that's an, so important. And it reminds us of like, in our racial equity analysis, we have to separate intent versus impact. Mm-hmm. Um, and because, and we can also question the intent because of the racialized history of our country and implicit in, yeah. and explicit bias. So to me, it shouldn't matter what people's intent are, you know, like, yeah. like it should matter, well, what's the impact? And it's really important in our racial equity analysis to be looking at policies about how they will impact communities of color. For a long time, there was, there are not people in the room like you. You know, I think people yeah. um, uh, would, because of their own internalized racism or their own uh, bias, uh, go along with the some of the arguments that people make about like, oh, you shouldn't force me to do this or we don't want this in our neighborhood or um, default to crime. But like, like I think it's important to, to call out um, the racialized tone of that mm-hmm. and also to just to simply state the, the, the facts and the data of who that will impact um, and why. And, mm-hmm. you know, and that is uncomfortable. But I yeah. think it's really important as leaders develop policy and do an impact analysis. Um, and it goes to, you know, our conversation earlier about what do we change, hearts or mind? Like, we, we yeah. know from studies around ban the box that, uh, that just – excluding that information on employment and landlord applications doesn't mean that people don't discriminate. Now we mm-hmm. see that like that means it gives people in power just the ability to say, well, I just assume every uh, black person is a criminal. And yeah. and so, you know, so there's still racism bias in the system. So do we change the hearts or do we ch- start to change mm-hmm. policy? Like, and don't get me wrong, anyone listening, I'm not saying that those policies are not good, but right going a step further in our racial equity analysis and saying like, okay, now what do we need to do in terms of enforcement um, and consequences, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that those that's the tough stuff. Those are the tough, those will be the toughest conversations we have when we start to do a racial equity analysis. Yeah, yeah. So before we run out of time, I wanted to ask you about philanthropy. Yeah. Um, so I, there was a, an episode that we did last, oh, I think it was last year, with Susan Thomas from Melville. Um, and I asked her essentially the, the same question that I want to ask you. So um, there, there's one critique that, that I sometimes hear um, is that generally, not always, but, but generally philanthropy um, often ends up treating the, the symptoms, um, but, it, but it avoids challenging the very structures that produce these 
uh, outcomes in the first place. And so this is clearly not something that Funders Together is doing. You're very clearly trying to, to tackle those systemic things. But but I'm talking sort of philanthropy as a whole. And, and the reason I ask this question is I read a book a while back called The, um, the Self-Help Myth. Um, it's by uh, Erica Cole Arenas from UC Davis. And it's, uh, I think the subtitle of the book is How how philanthropy fails to alleviate poverty. And she uses the case of um, migrant workers in California to make the case. And she basically says, look, you had all these foundations come in and they funded programs um, for migrant workers that sort of treated the symptoms. So they'd come in and they do immunizations, they do food banks, they do clothes, they do um, sort of self-help programs. But they didn't come in and challenge the root causes of the problem, the, the systems and the structures that were causing all these problems in the first place, which was large-scale farming that like you know relied on low-wage uh labor-heavy field work there was unregulated working environments there was widespread racism there was like common pesticide use and she sort of made the case that philanthropy sort of treated the symptoms not the problem so um i don't know you know i've never been in the in the philanthropic world so i don't know but i'm I'm curious your your take on this is this a is this a fair critique of philanthropy um that it's overly focused on symptoms not causes So I do think it is a fair critique of philanthropy. I think that philanthropy is waking up to two things. One, that it its very existence is rooted in white supremacy um, and colonization, right? And that um, we are largely operating in a system where the wealth that was acquired by these large uh, institutions of philanthropy was wealth made off of the backs of stolen land and stolen bodies. And there's an awakening to that and a recognition mm-hmm. around that. Uh, and I, so, and also that uh, this idea of how grant making is done, which as one of our board members reminds us is like, grant making is like a made up thing, right? They, there's no actual <laughs> like, so that's great because we can change it at any time, right? right and so this, right. this these, white dominant culture um, ways of thinking about goals and outcomes and um, you know the the constant thing I hear is like if MLK was asked to write a, a foundation request most funders would deny him because like you yeah. know he didn't have a, pl- a plan and uh, right. like I mean right. he did but like in their st- standard ways of outcomes right and so there's right. there's um, a growing recognition that these constraints that we've Put on funding and this um, funding towards short-term goals and outcomes to prove that their money this year is making an investment yeah. is not recognized that this journey is a 50-year liberation journey. It's not one grant report at a time. Yeah. And that um, I do see a lot of funders starting to do that root cause analysis and, and asking themselves, like, actually one funder asked me one time when we were doing this work with them like how far back do we go and i was like as far back as we can so we're you're understanding that the the things that you're investing in now are to dismantle and decolonize the policies that go back um around colonization and slavery and that might look different for every funder depending on how deep they can go in their investment um, but that that short-term solutions are not the full part of the ecosystem. And I think that's what is important, that we are realizing this crisis mm-hmm. that we're facing right now with the COVID epidemic, that we need short-term charity-like resources, right? But that can't yeah. be the full picture of the ecosystem, that we have yeah. to look at why disproportionately people of color will be impacted by this and what's the repair needed after we face this crisis. Is, and 
and so having all that type of funding, but having the majority of the funding start to look at root causes is is the repair that we, we need. So, and I think for funders who have for years, even before we woke up to uh, the racialized history in our country, started to go deeper on this investments, on their investments at, at the root cause, still were kind of operating in this white dominant culture. And now mm-hmm. they're realizing like, what will it mean to not have my foundation have to exist for communities to have power and resources? Um, like, what is the power dynamic that it, that is between a grantee and a, and a grantor that perpetuates us, like, actually getting to these root causes? So those tough conversations are being had in philanthropy now. Mm-hmm. And I think people are starting to undo some of those practices to get at, at answering some of those questions. Yeah. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, so I want to ask you two last quick questions. Sure. Um, What's what's next on the horizon for funders together? What's sort of the next uh, chunk of, of work that you all are, are pursuing? And then uh, where can the audience go to learn more about the work that you do? Yeah, well, that seems like a heavy question at this time. I feel like our... <laughs> I thought it was an easy one yeah, at the end. <laughs> yeah, right. Our work is now really focused on um, what does it take to uh, develop public-private partnerships in response mm. to the COVID epidemic. Mm. But we, you know... After we kind of got out of the shock of it all last week, we've been starting to say, like, okay, we've done all this work on applying a racial equity analysis to grant making. What does it mean to, at this moment now, really do that in this crisis? So our work will continue to center racial equity in our work to inform and um, uh, empower grant makers to center racial equity in their grant making and mm-hmm. we will continue to build that muscle and make it hurt <laughs> for a really long time yeah. and we have a group right now that is in their second year called foundations for uh foundations for racial equity that's been uh 30 or 40 funders across the country coming together to say like what how do i need to show up differently what do i need to change in my grant making practices so we'll be starting to release some of the learnings and findings that we've had. And there, you know, some of it is there are small things or big things um, that leaders in philanthropy can start to do to to change um, the way that they do things to really center justice, racial justice and racial equity. So you can find um, a lot of information about our work at funderstogether.org. You can see there our commitment to racial equity. If Mm -hmm. you follow our blogs, you will see that we'll be starting to um, produce a, a lot more content about what we're learning from our foundations from racial equity community of practice and um, the analysis we're doing on what does grant making with a racial equity lens look like, especially in times of, the, of this crisis. Well, th- thanks so much for your for your time, Amanda. This was such a critical issue. Your, your work on this is tremendous. I'll just shout out the, you know, the, the website and the blog. I, I, I find myself frequenting that pretty often. Um, and so, you know, you're, you're helping people like me think through think through our own work. And um, I just want to thank you for all that you do. And, and thanks so much for your uh, time this morning. Thank you. And we appreciate all your work. And we look forward to partnering with you uh, in the in the future. Awesome. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye.